In Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. Take your Bible and find Genesis chapter 3. I read the story this week of a lady uh, who was a member of her church in the northern part of the U.S. Her husband, is that, or her husband, her pastor is a well-known pastor and writer, and he was telling this story that she was on an airplane, and the man sitting next to her bowed his head and began to pray. And her being a Christian was just intrigued and, and, and thankful that she saw someone bowing their head and praying next to her in the airplane. And she didn't disturb him, of course, but when he finished, she said, uh, excuse me, sir, are you a Christian? He said, no, definitely not. So that was weird to her, right? Why would he bow and pray if he's not a Christian? She said, yeah, but you were just sitting there praying. She said, do you mind me asking who you're praying to? And she, this man looked at her and said, I was praying to Satan. And she, she tells the story. She was like, wow, he seemed more sincere than I do when I pray. And he's praying to Satan. And she said, what do you pray to Satan about? And the man said, I was praying that this week Satan would rip apart 30 churches. Of course, she's sitting there just heartbroken and really not knowing what to say back to this man who prays to Satan and is specifically praying that Satan would destroy things that God has put together. And that story just made me think, because it's certainly I've never had anything like that happen to me, but there is a reality that Satan works in this world. And that started way back in Genesis chapter 3. And so we're going to see where the enemy, the adversary, where he kind of started. And as we see where he started and look at the history and the importance of Genesis 3, because I believe this really happened. This was a real Satan, a real serpent, a real Adam and Eve, a real garden. I believe all this was real. It really happened. And we're going to see the, the, the history of it. But as we see that and the implications of that, let's make sure we see that so much of this still applies to our lives today. So this is not just some old fact. This, it is an old fact, but it applies to us even now. So look at Genesis 3. We're going to read verses 1 through 7 this morning. If you found it in your Bible, let me know by saying word. Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said unto the woman, Yea, hath God said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden. And the woman said unto the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God hath said, You shall not eat of it, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. And the serpent said unto the woman, You shall not surely die. For God doth know that in the day you eat thereof, then your eyes shall be open, and you shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit thereof, and did eat, and gave also unto her husband with her, and he did eat. And the eyes of them both were opened, and 
they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves aprons. Let's dive into Genesis chapter 3 and see what we can learn from this. The first thing I want us to note is the serpent. Who is the serpent? He speaks of him here in Genesis 3.1 as this beast of the field made by God. But what we know from the scripture as a whole is that this serpent is Satan. And he is either becoming a serpent or possessing the body of the serpent. That's so many debates on exactly how this happened. But nonetheless, in Revelation 12, 9, the Bible says that ancient serpent who is called the devil or Satan. And in Revelation 2, again, the devil and Satan is called the ancient serpent. So we take those passages, we take a couple of Old Testament passages, Ezekiel 28 and Isaiah 14, and we can learn more about this enemy. We can learn more about the serpent. We can learn more about Satan. Ezekiel 28, I won't read the whole passage to you, but it's speaking of an earthly king, but it has a dual meaning because it's speaking of an earthly king, but it says some things in verses 11 through 19 that really cannot be referring to just an earthly king. And one of the things it says in verse 13 says, You were in Eden, the garden of God. And it speaks as of this one who is blameless, this one who was, by the way, created by God, but this one who had a, eventually at some point had a corrupted heart because of his pride. That's what we see in Isaiah 14. Again, Isaiah 14 is a prophecy about an earthly king, but he is also referring to Satan as well. In Isaiah 14, he says, You have fallen from heaven, morning star, son of the dawn. You've been cast down to the earth. You said in your heart, I will ascend to the heavens. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit enthroned on the mount of assembly. This picture of Satan before his fall where he wanted to be God or be like God or be above God. And Isaiah 14, 15 says, But you are brought down to the realm of dead, the depths of the pit. So we have these passages from really Genesis to Revelation that refer to and tell us more about who this enemy is, who Satan is. And also, jot in a few notes, so where did he appear? We know he's in the Garden of Eden, but can you think what other places we see Satan appearing in the Scripture? How about with Job? Remember that story? It says, when the sons of God were going in to meet with God, uh, Satan kind of slipped in there to talk to God and see if he could tempt Job. How about after Jesus was baptized? Remember that story? Jesus is baptized, and Satan comes in and tempts him. And I'll, we'll talk more about that in a moment. And of course, in Revelation, we see this picture of Satan. I think the idea of Satan has certainly been misunderstood or misused in, in, in our lives and in history. Right? We see like TV shows or movies or like depictions of him as just this you know, devil-looking guy with a, you know, pitchfork and a, a tail and things like that. Um, I remember being a kid and seeing the cartoons. Remember the, the old-timey cartoons where somebody's making a decision and an angel will pop up on this shoulder and a little devil on this shoulder? And so I, I remember as a child thinking, like, the devil could be right there on my shoulder. <laughs> you know, don't listen to him, right? Listen to the good angel. And so there's all these different depictions of 
who Satan is like. But what we can see from our survey of the scripture is that he is a created being who is the enemy of God and all that God wants to do. And he's the enemy of God's people. And so in 2 Corinthians 11, 12 through 15, he speaks of, Paul speaks of these false apostles, and he says, And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Speaking of Satan and his work and his attempt to work in this world. 1 Peter 3.8, I'm sorry, 1 Peter 5.8 says, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary the devil prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. This text about Satan looking to destroy. And so we must remember, Satan is a personal being who personally wants to destroy God's work. Even now, what is he currently doing? Let me give you a few of these things quickly. He is, he is tempting and deceiving. He is depicted in Scripture as one who deceives, tempts. He likes to exploit people's weaknesses. Satan is a master of knowing his enemy. He has scouted the opponent. Satan knows when people are weak. And he knows how to deceive and tempt. Number two, he encourages false worship. I read a while back about a school in Memphis that were having after-school Satan Club. That's in Memphis. That's in the South, right? An after-school Satan Club. Who's going to let their kid go to an after-school Satan Club? That's wild. I don't know what they do there. But he encourages false worship. He wants anybody and any, everybody to not see God as God ought to be seen and lead them astray. He, number three, blinds, blinds minds. He's, a, again, a master deceiver using various tactics and schemes to deceive. Number four, he accuses and destroys. As we saw him with Job. He destroyed a lot of Job's life, didn't he? But we know that through grace, Job held on. But I want to say this about Satan. As we recognize he is real and he is active, I want to say a couple of other things. First, he is not equal with God. It's an unbiblical idea that there is God and Satan. I hope everybody leaves here with this truth. There is no God versus Satan. There is God and everything else he created. And Satan is a powerful force of that for evil. But it's not God versus Satan. Because, by the way, can I, can I go ahead and jump ahead in my sermon? Satan's already been defeated. He's already lost. I mean, the game's still going on, right? But the outcome is over. And even when Satan seems like he's winning, and if this world continues to seem like it's going downward in righteousness and holiness, if that were to happen... And it seems like Satan is winning in churches and communities and even in our country, which has a lot of churches. Though it might seem like Satan is winning, he is not winning. He is losing. He is a loser. And where he lost was at the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Right? Isn't that wild? Satan entered into Judas, the scripture says. Judas Iscariot, to betray Christ. So Satan had this God-ordained part 
in his own demise. I'll, I'll get these Roman soldiers to do this. I'll get Judas to do this. I'll get the Jewish leaders to do this. And meanwhile, Satan's working his plan, but he doesn't realize that's already God's plan, right? God's plan is greater than his plan. So Satan's was a part of delivering his own decisive death blow. As, if you don't believe me, Hebrews 2.14 says that through death, God might destroy the one who has the power of death, which is the devil. So hear me clearly. We recognize Satan is real and a real part of the forces of evil that would come against God's people. But we also do not give him too much credit because God is much greater than he could ever imagine to be. So this enemy, Satan, is in this garden. Look at verse 1. The serpent or is more subtle than any beast of the field. So what, what is he like? What is he like? Well, the word used here in this scripture says subtle, which means crafty, shrewd, sly, clever. Just pick your favorite one. He was a schemer. His primary characteristic is, again, pick one. The word cunning is used. In 2 Corinthians 11.3, Paul wrote and said, I'm afraid as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. Paul writes to the church there and says, as Satan tempted Eve to move astray, I'm afraid that you might be tempted to move astray. But no, keep your attention and your devotion to Christ. Spurgeon said this, Man has far more cunning than any mere creature but Satan has more cunning than any other creature that the Lord God has made, man included. And Satan is still this way. Just as we're going to see in a moment how he deceives Eve, he still works this way on people now. So, what's his strategy? What was his strategy? Well, he goes to the woman in verse 1 and he says, Has God really said, has God said you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? Verse 1, a couple of things I noticed about this, and I'll be careful how I say this. He attacked first the more vulnerable person. He attacked Eve, right? He went to Eve first. Um, I asked Jesse, I said, does this mean Satan attacked the weakest link? She's like, you can say that if you want to. <laughs> but you know, I thought we could arm wrestle as an illustration. Okay, maybe not. Here's what I mean by this. If you look in Genesis 2, God, though he created man and woman equal, he also created them with complementary roles, right? Different roles. We've already discussed this. And if you look closely at chapter 2, you'll notice when God gave Adam the command and said, eat of all these trees, but of this one tree, the tree of knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. If you'll look back in the scripture, you'll notice Eve was not there. And so he was the one given that command, and it was his responsibility as head of his household to teach his wife that truth. By the way, there's scripture in the New Testament that talks about Eve's responsibility, but there are more scriptures that talk about Adam's responsibility when it comes to the sin. So he picked first the more vulnerable person to attack. The second thing, and I think more importantly, is he attacked God's word. 
has God, verse 1, has God really said, has God said you should not eat? Has God said this? He's attempting to attack and get her to doubt God's word. He is going to twist God's word. Because if Satan's strategy works, if he can get her to doubt God's word, then anything will go next. By the way, this is what continually has happened throughout the history of the church. If a person begins to doubt God's word, if Satan can get you to doubt God's word is truth, then you will, the end of that is that you eventually leave God altogether. Because if this is not true, then why would I follow it, right? And that's why people who want to hurt the church will spend a lot of their time trying to destroy the truth of the Bible. I found that they come up short every time. But this is a smart strategy from Satan. Because if he can use God's word, use some of God's word, but twist it, he's more likely to get her to buy in. By the way, this is why we, we here at our church continually mention the most key doctrines of Christianity. This is why we sing songs like we sing and read scriptures like we read. We want to make sure when it comes to those very main doctrines that we do not get them twisted, right? We don't get them wrong. Now, there's some secondary issues, some third-level issues we might have some issues on, but when it comes to those primary doctrines, we repeat those so that we are more likely to be on a strong foundation. It is a sad truth that many people who claim to be Christians twist and turn God's word. That's happening in churches all across America today. So, as Satan attacks the truthfulness of God's word in verse 1, how does she respond? How does Eve respond? And I think she makes at least two mistakes here. The first one, the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden. The first mistake I think she makes is how long she entertains the conversation. And what I mean by that is there are so many scriptures that tell us when you have temptation, when you have evil, you should run from it. As a matter of fact, 1 Thessalonians says, avoid the appearance of evil. I think about Joseph when Potiphar's wife tried to uh, seduce him. What did he do? He ran out of there, didn't he? I think about that. But she, at least here, uh, entertained the conversation, which once you go down that path, right, you never know where that path might lead. That's just an application for us to say when we feel temptation, when we see temptation, may God help us to run from that temptation. As a matter of fact, how did Jesus respond when Satan tempted him? Well, Jesus entertained the conversation, but Jesus' response was to continually quote God's word. In Matthew 4, Jesus is baptized, the devil is tempting him, and the devil tempts him three different ways, and all three times Jesus said this, as it is written, and he quotes the scripture. As it is written, and he quotes the scripture. He had the conversation, but he used God's word. God's word is a holy counterpunch to the attacks of Satan. How many scriptures did Eve know in Genesis 3? I mean, did she have the Ten Commandments? Did she have the Gospels? No, no. All we really know that she knew was this one command. And she said it in verse 2, We made of the fruit of the trees, verse 3, but of the tree in the midst of the garden... God has said, you shall not eat of it, 
Neither shall you touch it or you'll die. Notice the second mistake is that she is adding to the word. And I get that because in chapter 2, it does not say the part about touching it lest you die. Although I think that's a good principle in the sense of like, don't touch evil, stay away from it. But is there something going on here where did Adam add that to it? Did, did God speak to them another time? We don't know about it. My point of application is this. We must always be careful not to add to God's word or take away from God's word. Again, I go back here and say that Adam is responsible to make sure his wife knew the truth. And she knows the truth. She said it. God said, don't eat of this, fruit, this tree. So Satan tempts her by diminishing God's word and diminishing God's goodness. Look at verse 4. He said, I'm paraphrasing right here. He said, you can eat it. You, you will not die. You'll be fine. He's tempting her. Verse 5, he says, God knows when you eat it, you're going to be like God. You're going to know good and evil. Your eyes are going to be open. You're going to see things you never imagined if you'll just eat this fruit. You will not die. It'll even be better. Satan is tempting her with his, his favorite thing, which is a desire to be like God. Isaiah 14. It's almost like he's saying, can God really be good if he is withholding this good thing from you? You're going, if you eat this, you're going to be okay, you will not die, and you will be like God. Is God really good if he's withholding something that's good from you? At this point, as I read this, plainly read through this, I feel like she's already on the hook. I feel like Satan's already got her hooked. She's being reeled in. If you give, what's the, the old saying? If you give someone an inch, they'll take a mile. Isn't that a saying? I feel like he's already got the inch. Ephesians 4.27 is a verse we should think about. It says, give no opportunity to the devil. That's for believers. Don't give him an inch. Don't put yourself in situations to be extra tempted, to be tempted. So he tempts her with desire to be like God, then he tempts her with what God knows. This just reminds me of like peer pressure, right? You'll be fine, just do it. It's, it's all good, you'll be fine. As a matter of fact, you, you'll be more than fine. You'll know as much as God knows, or you'll be like God. Your eyes will be opened. I was thinking about that, just applying that to us. Um, be encouraged that you are not God. Be encouraged that you don't know all that God knows. Especially when we go through difficult seasons of life and we want to know the answers, we want, to see, we want the relief in those difficult times of life, be encouraged to know that we have a God who is greater and higher and he is working in the lives of his people, though we cannot see it all the time, though we cannot feel it all the time, he is working things out for our good. So we don't have to be God or be like God or know, that all God, know all that God knows for God to guide us in the way we should go. Look at this quote. I'm not sure who wrote this. 
but I liked it. It says, in Satan's direct challenge, he tries to get Eve to doubt the goodness of God. If God has lied to her, how can he be good? He tries to get Eve to doubt the badness of sin. If, if the fruit is something good for her, then why doesn't God want her to have it? Satan wants us to see sin as something good that a bad God doesn't want us to have. His, man, his main lie is, sin is not bad, God is not good. Is that not still true today? Anybody that would lead us astray from God would say these two things. Sin's not bad, God's not good. As a matter of fact, our world today does not just condone sin and accept sin. Now we celebrate sin, right? And we completely diminish God as a world, as a culture. So we've got it backwards, right? Which is why the church's job, one of the jobs of the church, one of the goals of the church and through God's word is that we would exalt who God is and diminish what sin is in the sense of we don't want to do it. We want to stay away from it. We want to call it sin when it's sin. And so though the world has that backwards, we want to make sure as a church we get that right. That God is good. God is exalted. And that sin is terrible. So, in verses 6 and 7, our final two verses, we see a moment that could be considered, could be considered the worst moment in the history of the creation, or at least it's up there. Because verse 6 says, the woman saw that the tree was good for food, think about that, she had plenty of other food. Saw that it was good for food. It was pleasant to the eyes. And a tree desired to make one wise. Satan is appealing, isn't he? To the lust of the eyes, the flesh, pride of life. He's appealing to these things. She took of the fruit and did eat. And gave also unto her husband with her. And he did eat. And their eyes were opened. Just as Satan had said, right? He said your eyes will be open. Their eyes were open. They knew that they were naked. They sowed, by the way, shame, guilt, fear. They sewed fig leaves together and made themselves clothing. We'll see next week as God comes to the garden to see them. Do they go meet God? Or what do they do? They go and hide, don't they? Because the result of sin is shame, guilt, and fear. One, some of the results. On these verses, Calvin said this. He said, For the faith she had in the word of God was the best guardian of her heart and of all her senses. Think about that for a second. Faith in God's word, what God had said to them. But now, after the heart had declined from faith and from obedience to the word, she corrupted both herself and all her senses, and depravity was diffused through all parts of her soul as well as her body. When our faith is in what God wants us to do, when our faith is in who God is, just kind of go back two slides. When our faith is in God's word and who God is, we are more likely to obey God and avoid sin. One more. Thank you. All right, go back forward. I don't know. Rub your tummy and pat your head. 
Just keep going, you're good. Stay with me on this. When our faith is in the word of God and in God in our lives, we are more likely to pursue righteousness and avoid sin. But when our faith begins to decline, when our looking at God's word, our life, our prayer life, our church life, when these things begin to decline, then we are going to fall into sin. We have to have God's word and prayer and God's people to help us stay closer to him. And many people find that think they have faith that as they decline, they find they end up rejecting God altogether to show they never really knew God in the first place. Therefore, just as faith alone unites us to God, unbelief separates us from God. When someone asks me, how do I know I'm a Christian? I don't say, can you go back to a time in your life where you received Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior? I don't say that. Here's what I say. Do you believe in Jesus Christ? Do you believe he died for your sins and rose again? And have you trusted in him? Do you believe in him? Because your past faith means nothing if you don't have present faith. Because past faith that doesn't have present faith was never truly faith in the first place. Past faith that doesn't have present faith was false faith. I'm pulling this here from, from Eve and listening to the serpent and her faith that surely she had in God's word was declining. Genesis 3, 6, and 7 become one of the most key moments in history. The church father Augustine called it original sin. When Eve and Adam, let me get, let's get Adam in the picture here. When Adam and Eve sinned, it was not just a small issue, small problem, small mistake. They didn't accidentally trip and fall into sin. We call it the fall of man, but I don't even necessarily like that word fall because it wasn't like they tripped and fell, right? It was more like a plunge. You know, you stand on the side of the pool and you dive in. They didn't trip and fall in the pool. They dove in. It was blatant disobedience to God, an open rejection of his word. Someone said Adam's sin was cosmic treason against the king of the universe. If you take this sin lightly, if you don't understand the depth of what I'm saying, you really will not be able to figure out the rest of the scripture. But if you get this part right, that by Adam's sin, as Mark read to us earlier, all have become sinners. If you get that part right, then you will begin to understand the rest of how the scripture unfolds. God had given Adam all that he needed, and yet for Adam that wasn't enough. Original sin is the moral corruption we possess as a consequence of Adam's sin. So, as some would say, you know what, people are mostly just good. The scripture says in Jeremiah 17, our hearts are deceitfully wicked, ruined, corrupted. Someone came to me this week and they said, uh, they said you're going to think I'm a terrible person with what I'm about to tell you. And I said, I already think you're a terrible person. <laughs> they were like, what? I said, well, you know, we're all sinners. 
Oh. What's Romans 3.10 say? How many people are good? It says there is none good, not even one. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So, because of Adam's sin, and we being his children as our first father, we have that sin nature in us, don't we? David said, in sin I was conceived. As we heard in Romans 5, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death spread because all have sinned. That doesn't mean we just blame Adam, right? Because we all know from the time we're very young, we begin to disobey our parents or do wrong things or lie or do whatever. We, we do sin. We can look at those Ten Commandments and go, whoa, we fall short. Original sin laid the foundation for every problem we have. It really did. Sin laid the foundation for every problem we have. Let me give you a few examples. Physical. Right? We get sick. We grow old. Our bodies decay. And we will one day die. Why? Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin is death. Hebrews 9.27 says it's now appointed unto man once to die. Now, does that necessarily mean just because I get sick, I must have a certain particular sin going on? Not necessarily. But I'm saying sin as a whole, sin in this world, causes us to decay and, and eventually die. How about emotional and mental struggles? Sin influences that. Relational struggles. Does Satan want the marriages in our church to be strong? No. He wants to kill, steal, and destroy churches and Christians and families. And of course, he might do that through external ways, but internally we know that can happen through sin if we let that get into our lives. How about volitional? That speaks of our will. I want to say this. So many people, I, I hear this pretty regularly. Somebody wants to talk about free will. And here's my free will spiel. spiel. Free will spiel. Your will and my will has been corrupted in sin. So that I would never will God or to choose God. That's how bad sin was and is. That it leads us to death. We have emotional, mental, relational. But more importantly than that, I would never will to choose God. I would never go, you know what? God sounds like a good idea because... In my sin, I'm going to treasure sin more than anything else. Which is why it becomes so amazing that God would choose to save sinners like us. And it blows my mind that we would have the audacity to say, I know God because I did this, 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 this. You cannot believe the Bible. And believe that you know God because you were the decisive factor in that salvation. You just can't. I can't see it there. We know that our God is in the heavens and he does all that he pleases. And I'm thankful that he overcomes our dead spiritual hearts. He overcomes our stubbornness. He overcomes our rejection. He overcomes our sin. He overcomes our treason. And he brings us to himself. John 1 says, not by flesh but by the will of God.
So don't brag about your free will. Be thankful that his will be done. Sin has corrupted ours. Spiritual. I've already said it. We are dead in sin. In salvation, the way we see it in Scripture, God is not taking bad people and making them good. God is not making bad people good. God is making spiritually dead people alive. Conclusion. If you understand the reality from Genesis 3, as I said earlier, you can see how the rest of Scripture begins to fall in place. And I'll conclude with kind of saying this. Have you ever thought this? Why did God even put that tree there? Why did God put that tree to tempt them? Why did God allow Satan in that garden? Because God is all-powerful, why would he even allow that? Well, one possible answer, and not that we can understand all the ways of God, one possible answer is that God wanted to give his people a way to show their love through obedience. Uh, do you trust me? Do you love me? So here's one simple thing to obey. Maybe not simple, but here's one thing to obey. Maybe that's why God allowed the tree, God allowed Satan to be there. And God allowed this conversation to take place. But my bigger answer is this. God allowed this to take place because this would set up his eternal plan that he might save people and bring himself the maximum amount of glory. That people he had made in his image would reject him and he would make a way to bring those rejectors, those traitors, back to himself and love them. How does he do it? Through the gospel. God would send his son through the seed of Adam to become the second Adam or the better Adam or the perfect one. For as by Adam's disobedience many were made sinners, so by Christ's obedience, that means in his life and in his death, many will be made righteous. Genesis 3, in many ways, is the most tragic story in the Bible, or the most devastating story in the Bible, because mankind is flung into sin, and yet the most tragic story has a victorious, glorious ending, because God sent Jesus Christ to die for sinners. That if we would repent of our sin and believe in him, our sins are forgiven and we are given eternal life. So we may not understand everything involved in the way Satan used the serpent and became the serpent. We may not understand all these things about Adam and Eve in this story, but we can know this, it was true. It was not a mere fable. It's not just an allegory. If you think Genesis 3 is an allegory, you might as well just get rid of your Bible altogether. This happened. There was a real serpent, a real Eden, a real Adam and Eve. They really sinned, and our race is really fallen, and now desperately dependent on Christ. We can believe this. Let's pray.